Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mashi, distinguished guests, colleagues and students. It is my pleasure to welcome you here tonight to a uh, most relevant presentation. My name is Nisreen Bashir, and I am an academic fellow in the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures. And I am, um, before I continue, it is important to acknowledge and pay respect to the social and historical context within which we gather here this evening. To this end, the University of Sydney would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. The format of tonight's evening uh, will be as follows. Uh, Mr. Zaki Mahshi will start with a presentation. It will then be followed by a QA and uh, by my colleague, uh, Paul Esper. Tonight's event will be audio recorded and made available on the Sydney Ideas website. The ongoing Syrian conflict has no parallels in living memory and has justifiably been described as the conflict of our times. What we are witnessing today in Syria was born out of the uprisings that spread across much of the Arab world in 2011. Referred to in some circles as the Arab Spring, these demonstrations which began in Tunisia following the self-immolation of Mohammed Bouazizi in December 2010 ruptured the socio-political status quo of the region. Several authoritarian leaders, Zain Abidine Ben Ali in Tunisia, Egypt's Hosni Mubarak, and Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, all fell to the critical mass of popular mobilizations. And the kings of the constitutional monarchies, Morocco and Jordan, were compelled to reinstate um, stalled reform agendas. In Syria, demonstrations against the authoritarian regime of President Bashar al-Assad had their epicenter in Dara, a city in the southwest near the border of Jordan. Protests gathered momentum um, in March 2011 after news broke of Syrian security forces arresting several teenagers who had graffitied revolutionary slogans on the wall, on the wall of a local school. The movement was galvanized after torture and the murder in, uh, in custody of 13-year-old Hamza al-Khatib in May 2011. In Tunisia and Egypt, the success of uh, the demonstrators depended in no small part on the relative inaction of the respective countries' militaries. Their Syrian counterpart, as the brutal, of, um, the brutal death of al-Khatib attests, were faced um, with military force from the beginning, employed by President al-Assad to curb the spread of the burgeoning protest movement, a consequence of which was the arming of opposition protest group, precipitating external interference from actors within and without the region. Now in its eighth year, the civil war was, uh, has claimed more than 465,000 lives in the fighting with over one million injured and a staggering 12 million displaced. Last year, the UNHCR reported that up to 6.1 million Syrians were displaced internally. 
with an additional 13.1 million people requiring humanitarian assistance. On the um, regional front, Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey have become frontline hosting countries, together containing the majority of the 5.1 million Syrians dispersed across the region. Further afield, the migration of Syrians seeking safety in Europe has seen uh, poisoning of immigration and hum humanitarian debates feeding into the rise of popularism in uh, a number of EU uh, member states. Many, many analyses of the conflict have focused on geopolitical characteristics from different perspectives, including but not limited to the role of foreign fighters, the, evolu the evolution of jihadi groups, so-called Islamic states, Kurdish politics, and prospects of Kurdish autonomy. The power play between Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, who both appear to be vying for regional dominance through Syria, and the parallel politicking uh, between Saudi Arabia and its Gulf neighbors, especially Qatar. On a more global level, the objectives of Russia through its involvement in supporting the regime of President Bashar al-Assad have been contrasted with the United States comparatively less than enthusiastic participation. Against this backdrop, relatively less attention in, this, uh, in the public eye has been given to the human experience of the conflict. For this reason, we are especially fortunate, fortunate to have uh, Zaki Mahshi here tonight. His visit to Australia has been generously funded by the Council for Australian Arab Relations, CAR, and we are very thankful for CAR's role in making tonight possible. I would also like to thank colleagues of the Middle East Studies Forum at Deakin University for initiating and organizing Zaki's visit. An economist by education with a BA in economics and a diploma in international economic relations from Damascus University, in addition to a master in international economics from the University of Essex, Zaki brings to his research agenda a thorough understanding as to the human face of economic phenomena. In relation to the Syrian crisis, this includes in-depth analyses of the socioeconomic ramifications of the present war, concerning not only statistics such as GDP, but equally the current and future impacts of war-generated poverty. Included um, under this umbrella are such realities as the depreciating opportunities for and quality of education and health services, both of which will have profound and long-lasting consequences on Syria's human development index and social capital once the conflict subsides. In his address tonight, Zaki Mahshi will enunciate the dramatic changes in um, the current domestic, regional, and international institutional dynamics pertinent to the situation in Syria. These changes are significant inasmuch as they have fostered the emergence of conflict-related actors, sustaining some while reducing the power and scope of others. This multifaceted analysis is presented within a framework of justice that takes into account differences across Syria's uh, regions. Zaki is a co-founder of the independent think tank, the Syrian Center for Policy Research, established in Damascus in 2012. Prior to this, he was a senior researcher for the Syrian Center for Development Research. Both of these affiliations provide an insight into the research, his research interests, which focus on development uh, policies, the socioeconomic impact of the current crisis in Syria, poverty anti and multidimensional uh, deprivation, in addition to social capital and cohesion. 
labor politics and community empowerment. Please join me in welcoming to the podium, Mr. Zaki Mashi. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. And I would like also to, thanks, uh, to thank uh, uh, the Council uh, of uh, Australian Arab uh, Relations and uh, Sydney Ideas and Deakin University also for giving me this opportunity to discuss a very important issue and complicated issue of, uh, in Syria and the Syrian crisis. I'll give you a brief about the Syrian Center for Policy Research. Uh, I'm a researcher and co-founder in, uh, in the Syrian uh, Center for Policy Research, which is an independent, non-governmental, not-for-profit organization. Uh, we work in, in three pillars. The first one is conducting research. The second one is conducting dialogue, evidence-based dialogue, based on the outputs of the research that we have. And the third pillar is awareness or uh, through public uh, or open public discussions through other social media discussion. Today's presentation is about the socioeconomic impact of the crisis in Syria. But uh, first, I would like to start with a kind of storyline of the conflict to go a bit beyond the mainstream understanding about the Syrian uh, conflict, which for, for some time make it very simple it's, for example, a conflict between a regime which considered as one entity and the Syrian population which considered a one entity. Or it's a fight between Sunni and Shia, or it's a fight between Alawite and uh, the majority Sunni people in Syria. It's not like that. It's much more complicated than this. And uh, I would like to start with the core root, or, uh, root cause of the crisis in Syria, because it's very important to highlight the root cause of the crisis in Syria, so not to recreate or regenerate the same causes for future crisis in the country. It was obvious before the crisis or before the social movement started in 2011 that Syria suffered a lot from the political oppression. It's not like the North Korean mode of oppression. There was kind of space for people to talk, but not cross the red line. And it's more, it's very, it was very important for the regime not to create entities and institutions and structure, political structure against the regime. So they have this very narrow space for discussion, but not really inclusive discussion and political participation. So it was kind of really clear political oppression and in addition to exclusion, not only political exclusion, but also social and economic exclusion. This led, we are talking before the crisis now, this led to an increasing gap between the dominant institutions in Syria and the needs and aspirations of the majority of Syrian people. And this is what we called institutional bottlenecks. It's a gap, the, the dominant institutions, and when we say institutions, we are not talking about 
only about the formal institutions. We are talking about formal institutions that include governmental entities and constitution, for example, and informal institutions that include religious uh, entities and include traditions and include community leaders. So there was kind of coalition between formal and informal institution to repress or to exclude the majority of Syrian people to achieve the benefit of only small minority of Syria. And it's not minority in terms of sects. It's not a white minority. It's about the elite to achieve the benefit of the elite in Syria. Of course, this institutional bottlenecks, the, the, there was an attempt by the regime when Bashar al-Assad became a president in, two, in, in year 2000, there was an attempt to release or to make a kind of real reform. And that's why we had in Syria what we called Damascus Spring. Damascus Spring was kind of initiative conducted by several uh, intellectuals and politicians to achieve a reform in Syria. But unfortunately, this continued for only a few months. And then the regime again, and when I'm saying, when I, when I say regime, I'm not meaning only Bashar al-Assad. It's a complete regime, including intelligence agency, including security, including army, including crony capitalists that are allied with the uh, regime. So the regime su suppressed this Damascus spring. And at the same time, the regime start to talk about reform. I'm talking about the era between, or the period between 2001, 2010, before the crisis. They start to talk about reform, which was really fake reform. But they use numbers and indicators from international organizations such as World Bank. For example, one of these indicators is the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate in Syria was about 8% in 2010. And this was relatively low in a developing country like Syria. And even the World Bank and IMF used to say that Syrian economy is uh, boosting. And Syrian economic indicators are good. But the regime intend not to show the comprehensive picture of this fake reform. We have the 8% unemployment rate, but at the same time, we had a large deterioration in the labor force participation rate from 52% in 2001 to less than 42% in 2010. What does this mean? It means that people, especially young people, were frustrated. They were not looking for a job and they were not working. So they are frustrated and they are out of labor market. Although Syria, in this time, achieved a relatively good economic growth, which, is, which was, in average, about 4.5% between 2001-2010. But all this economic growth came from rent-oriented uh, rent, rent activities, real estate, 
and even from the newly introduced telecommunication companies and banking companies, which were dominated by people related to President Assad and related to the regime at, as, as all. So we have institutional bottlenecks and we have this fake or the illusion of reform and the support of the regime for this fake reform and even the, the propaganda of the regime uh, used to say about Bashar al-Assad as the leader of the reform process in Syria. But at the end, the reform was fake and we have many other evidence than the unemployment rate. But why the social movement waited till 2011 to happen? We believe that there are two reasons for that. The first one is the increasing in awareness among people due to the new telecommunication, due to the relatively easy access for especially young people to what's happening outside. This is one point. And the other factor is the capability. People start to believe that they can change after what happened in Tunisia, in Egypt, in somehow in Libya. So they start to believe that they can change. But what happened? It started with peaceful demonstration against corruption, against the regime, uh, asking for more freedom and more justice. But it turned to become one of the uh, most uh, tragic armed conflict since the World War II. Why? Also here we believe that there are also two factors. The first one is the, is the brutality of the regime in dealing with the social movement since its beginning. The second reason is, of course, the huge uh, intervention or external interventions. These external interventions support the fighting subjugating powers. And when we say subjugating powers, we mean the regime and the other armed groups in the opposition. The, unfortunately, the international support did not go to Syrian civil society, did not go to Syrian people. The international support went, and still like that now, supporting the fighting powers. We have Iran, we have Russia, we have Turkey, we have Gulf countries, we have USA, and we have uh, also EU countries, UK, supporting armed groups, regardless these armed groups working under which party. So these two factors played a major role in turning the social movement into armed conflict. And unfortunately, after we have the armed conflict, the dynamics within the country changed. We are talking about institutional dynamics, economic, social dynamics. The violence became the core of all activities in Syria. For example, in terms of economy, we don't have regular economy anymore. We have violence-related economy. And even one indicator mentioned that 50% of, of, of workers in Syria 
are working in activities related to violence, and this is a huge percentage. Of course, in addition to the emergence of the warlords and the crony capitalists in each region, not only in the regime-controlled area, in addition to the fragmentation in, of Syria, it's not only geographical fragmentation, but also fragmentation in terms of economy, in terms of culture, in terms of social indicators. Because each de facto authority in each region, region has its own agenda. Of course, this agenda is to serve their own benefit, not the benefit of Syrian people. These subjugating powers invest a lot in what we call the identity politics. They invest a lot in hatred. They invest a lot in uh, creating this crack in the society to gain loyal people. For example, they play on or they use or they invest in sectorism. Okay, you are Sunni, you should be with us as an opposition because we are fighting the, Alaw the Alawite. And this is not the situation. The same happened with the regime. The regime tried to say, okay, I'm the secular power here, and we don't want to have Daesh or ISIS in, in Syria. So I am the only defender of the country. So they play on this, or they use this uh, issue of identity politics in Syria that increased the polarization in the country and increased the hatred within Syrian society. Of course, the final point in this brief story line is about the reconstruction uh, process. Now the regime is trying to say, okay, we will have reconstruction process, and it reminds us a lot with the reform before the crisis, because we believe that reconstruction process cannot be sustainable, it cannot be efficient, if it's not inclusive. And what the regime is doing now is to exclude people and include only loyal people and crony capitalists and warlords work for the regime in the reconstruction process. So it's not a reconstruction process for the Syrian people or the majority of Syrian people. It's a reconstruction process for the conflict elite who supported the regime, and we believe that this will not be sustainable, and it will create sooner or later another conflict in the country. Now moving to, moving to some indicators that reflect the uh, impact of the crisis or the socioeconomic impact of the crisis, here we have the, uh, the economic losses or estimation of economic losses uh, of the crisis in Syria. Uh, in, by the end of 2015, the economic loss re estimated at 255 billion USD, which is almost five times of the Syria GDP in 2010. And by the end of 2017, it's estimated that this number will be much higher and it will reach about six times of Syria's GDP in 2010. And it's a huge number. It needs decades to overcome the impact of this loss. This total loss divided into several sub 
section. We have loss in GDP due to the uh, lack of production, due to the uh, uh, destruction or flow of capital outside the country. We have the loss due to the destruction of the uh, capital stock. It means the destruction in building, in factories, and the cost or the loss due to the additional military expenses from both sides, regime and opposition, and the loss of the natural uh, wealth of the country. And this is uh, uh, estimated through the difference between, for example, in how much price Daesh used to sell one barrel of oil comparing to the international price of the oil. So the difference is the loss of natural wealth of the country. The overall amount estimated at 255 billion USD by the end of 2015. This map reflects the living conditions index in all over the country. We can see uh, in the table, this is the Syrian governorate. We can see that the living condition index, which include or which reflects the housing conditions, acce uh, accessibility to uh, health services, education, uh, transportation, uh, etc. It decreased in all Syrian governorates compared to the year 2010. But it differs ac uh, across this governorate. We can see the uh, highest decrease happened in Arraqqa and in Idlib. This is due to the lack of services, lack of electricity, and most importantly to the uh, armed uh, conflict and to the military operations in this region. We can have here the same in Idlib, for example, and in Aleppo. And to a less extent, we can see that the situation in places like Damascus and Sueda and Latakia, where there was no uh, military operations, or let's say, uh, uh, hard military operation, the situation is relatively better. But in all countries, the index decreased largely. Of course, due to the crisis, there was a, a large uh, increase in uh, prices. And we can see that the CPI, Consumer Price Index, which reflects the inflation in any country, increased by 10 times uh, uh, increased 10 times by the end of 2017 compared to its level in 2010. And of course, this mainly due to the dynamics of the conflict that led to a depreciation in Syrian currency against USD. Here we can see in uh, green, the CPI, and here we can see the exchange rate, official and, and unofficial exchange rate. It doubled like 10 times in the course of the crisis. 
Of course, the surge in prices, in addition to the lack of economic opportunity and job opportunity and the destruction of economic activities uh, in all sectors, this led to a, an increase, a large increase in the poverty rate in the country. Here in, and in all region. Here we can see a comparison between the overall poverty rate in Syria in 2014 and in 2015. In 2014, the average rate was like 83%, increased to 85% in 2015. Here we are talking about all Syrian region. And it's expected to increase to reach about or more than 90% by the end of 2017. Of course, here we can see also the, the difference between region. We can see that least affected governorate is Tartus, Latakia, and Damascus, and Sweda. This region did not face relatively uh, military operations and really destruction, and it's under the regime-controlled area. Here we have a chart that reflects the labor market situation or labor market or the impact of the crisis on labor market. We can see here that the unemployment uh, rate or people, people who are unemployed, unemployed is about 3 million people. And the employed people is about 2.5 million by the end of 2015. But the most important thing here as I mentioned before, even people who are working or who are employed in Syria are involved, 50% of employed people in Syria are involved directly or indirectly in violence-related activities. And this is a very crucial uh, issue for the future of Syria because when you are involved in violence-related activities, for sure you earn much more than being involved in civil activities or in normal activities. So now the question is, how can we provide or what kind of incentive can we provide for people to move from violence-related activity to civil activities so that to decrease the volume of the conflict? One of the main consequences of the Syrian crisis is the demographic dispersion in Syria. Here we have the Syrian population pyramid, which reflects a huge change in the number of population and in the distribution of population by age group. The number of population decreased between 2010 and 2017, due to the increasing number of refugees and migrants. And most of these refugees and migrants were among the young people. So we can have here in the population pyramid a, a decreasing percentage of young people in Syria in the future, comparing to the counterfactual scenario if the crisis would not happen. And of course, in another uh, 
the other reason for this decreasing in the percentage of young population is the most people killed in Syria are among are from the young population. About zero point about half million people killed in Syria, and most of them are among the young population because the young population are directly involved in armed conflict and armed groups, and mainly men. And even the, the, percent, the percentage between male and female changed in Syria due to the crisis. Before the crisis, it was like 49% uh, female and 51% male. Now it's vice versa. It's 51 female and 49 male. The, the total number of, of population is estimated by the end of 2017 at... 19.2 million. Among these population, there was about 30% or 6 million people as IDPs, internally displaced people. In addition to about 5 million or 6 million refugees and migrants to neighboring countries and mainly to Europe. So the conflict led to a dramatic change in the structure of population in terms of gender, in terms of age group, and even in terms of total number of population. Of course, the conflict has also a huge impact, negative impact on human capital and mainly on education. Here we can see the average years of schooling and the drop in the average years of schooling in Syria uh, by the end of 2015 compared to the pre-crisis uh, level. It dropped by like three years. And it's known that this kind of indicator needs a lot of time to change, positively or negatively. So to lose two years of uh, school uh, of uh, years of schooling it's a very uh, large uh, impact negative impact of the crisis on education and of course this is because of many reasons the difficult uh, to access a school in many areas in Syria the difficulty or the destruction of many schools about 20% of schools in Syria were destroyed in all regions, mainly in the hot zones in Syria. So 45% uh, so of children in school age, they are not attending school in Syria. And this has, of course, current impact, but of course, future impact in terms of human capital for Syria. And we have another important issue in terms of education, which affect the identity of Syrian people. Due to the fragmentation and the de facto authority in different regions, each authority attempts to have its own curriculum, its own education system. And this curriculum is basically, or is based on hating other. For example, in the region, you should hate the opposition because all of them are terrorists. In the opposition area, you should hate the, uh, or they teach 
children to hate the regime because they are uh, all criminals. So this creates a, a large uh, crack in the Syrian society, and of course it will have also future impact on the social cohesion in the country. The, the accumulated estimated cost of lost schooling years is about 16 million years because it's aggregated. Each student, for example, lost like five years or two years, and we have millions of students, so the aggregation or accumulated number is 16 schooling years Syria lost since 2011. Now, in terms of health, of course, health facilities used sometime or most of the time by this fighting, power, uh, this fighting uh, parties as a weapon, as a tool to obtain loyal people. You can have access to health, to health facilities if you support us. If you don't support us, you cannot have access. In addition to the huge destruction of these facilities, and in addition to the sanction, international sanctions, on importing medicine to Syria, all these factors led to a huge deterioration in life expectancy that reflects the overall living conditions and health situation. Here we can see that life expectancy in Syria decreased from about 71 years in 2010 to reach less than 55 years in, by the end of 2015. And this is, again, a large deterioration for an indicator like life, like, as, such as life expectancy. Due to the deterioration in education, health, and income, we can see that the HDI for Syria in 2016 decreased largely, putting Syria in the rank of 173 out of 187 countries, where it was 121, the rank, in 2010. Of course, this means that Syria lost decades of development uh, outputs. The, the level of human development index is equal to the level of a human de development index for Syria in 1970. So Syria lost, with this indicator, lost about 50 years of development output. We talked a lot about the social cohesion. And this index, the social capital, reflects the deterioration in social cohesion due to, the, to, due to many uh, factors. One of the main factors is the investment of subjugating powers, of the fighting subjugating powers in the identity politics, in the hatred of other. So we can see here that this social capital index consists of three main sub-indicators, trust, and social networks and shared values. The overall index decreased by 30% in Syria 
during the conflict. And this reflects a large decrease in social cohesion between Syrian people, and this will affect the, any future reconciliation and the future of Syria as a unified country. Uh, I'll go quickly to, through the, uh, towards sustainable peace by highlighting uh, one important uh, issue. The majority, due to the consequences that I presented here, we can say that the majority of Syrian people are frustrated. That's why they accept, for example, the existence of the, or the, existence of the regime in the regime-controlled area, and even they deal with Daesh in Daesh-controlled uh, area. But this does not mean that they are happy or they support the regime, or they support the armed group, or they support Daesh. This means that Syrian people, the majority of them, are frustrated because they don't have choices. They, it seems for them that they only have two alternatives. The first one is the regime, the oppressive regime, and the second one is the chaos and the dominance of armed groups. That's why there is a need to create or to contribute in creating other alternatives or third alternative for Syrian people. And we are sure and we believe that Syrian people are looking for these alternatives. So to reach this alternative, there are too many steps to do. And we believe that, and being pragmatic, it's not going to happen soon not even next year or in five years or in maybe 20 years. But we need to work on this alternative from now. The alternative that is based on justice and freedom, the alternative that is based on uh, values, equality, and uh, refuse the discrimination, all kinds of discrimination. And of course, there are some steps to take or some uh, points to tackle to reach this alternative. For example, the first step is to ceasing uh, the killing, to uh, dismantle the foundation of violence-related economy and violence-related institutions. And all these steps needs time for sure. But what is the starting point? We believe that the starting point for all this is to have protected and free space for dialogue, and inclusive space for dialogue. So for all people, regardless their background, their political, economic, and social background, to participate in this dialogue, to reach, hopefully in near future, their aspiration, or the institutions, the just and fair institutions that meet their aspiration. And thank you very much. Thank you very much, Zaki Mashi, for uh, what was a very poignant and intriguing talk on a series of uh, characteristics of the Syrian conflict that aren't highlighted enough uh, to do with the human element of the conflict. Uh, my name is Paul Esper. I'm a faculty member at, in the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures. Uh, I'm going to open it to the floor for questions because I'm certain there are many. 
Um, how did you collect your data, given that you're a non-governmental organization, and um, what was your relationship with the regime? Was it aware of what, what you were doing at the time? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, first of all, we used the available secondary data published by uh, ministries, published by entities working in the opposition-held area. In addition to uh, our good relation with many experts working inside the governmental entities, informal uh, relation with them, and good relation with activists in the opposition-held uh, area, in Kurdish-held area, in addition to the programs or econometrics uh, analysis that we applied on the collected data. And there is another source. We applied a comprehensive survey in 2014, uh, demographic or developmental survey, let's say, covering all developmental uh, dimensions, including economy, social, uh, demographic institutions. We applied this uh, survey in 2014, covering all Syrian regions in cooperation with several entities. For example, in opposition uh, health area, we cooperated with uh, NGOs. Even in the regime-controlled area, we cooperated with many NGOs. In addition to our cooperation, as I said, with expert working inside governmental uh, hi, my, my name's Cosmos. My question is, you, um, the, the, the pathway forward, the, the way you, you saw it may unfold to repair the impact, um, it was basically an, an institutional-led solution, um, building institutions, and, but that requires resourcing for the institutions. Um, and you didn't really talk about a, a possible way of, of satisfying the external um, pressures, um, what Russia wants, what America wants, what uh, Turkey wants, what uh, Iran wants, Saudi Arabia and so on. But you would need to get some type of harmony in terms of their needs to be able to resource the institutions to be able to do something. Do you have a view about the external um, pressures and uh, how you go about satisfying those or how they may blend to support the institutions? Actually, I, I believe from my point of view, the, all the external uh, actors are not really supporting the majority of Syrian people. They are supporting specific uh, power, and we can say specific subjugating, subjugating power that were fighting together for their own benefit. And the external actors are supporting this power for their own benefit. And for sure, they are not working for the benefit of Syrian people. That's why we believe that only the Syrian people can push for a good solution or can push for building just and fair institutions that meet their aspirations. The first step is very difficult. But then when these external actors see that there is a weight for Syrian society, they could or they may support these activities. And also we believe that the international civil society will also or could also support Syrian people in this, in having their own space for discussion and dialogue to reach the inclusive institutions that Syrian people are aiming to. I think that many people see that this 
solution, I mean, to depend on Syrian people to create their own institution is unrealistic. And we need to be pragmatic and seek for the support of external actors. And actually, I have an evidence that no, Syrian people can do this breakthrough. And the most important evidence is what happened in 2011, the social movement. In 2011, let's say in 2010, no one and no external actor believed that Syrian people can revolt against the regime because they did not have the means, they did not have the tools, they did not have the, even the space. But at the end, the Syrian people created the, the institutions, informal institutions, to face the regime. But due to the exter external influence, this social movement, or partially due to the external influence, this uh, informal institution and this social movement turned to become an armed conflict. Um. Yeah, hi, um, my name's Mark. Um, I'm part of the Refugee Action Coalition and also am an admin on the Syria Solidarity Australia Facebook page. Um, thank you very much. I think it was very important, your perspective. The political economy and social aspect is often left out. I had a question about the urban reconstruction that you talked about, because I've just been reading about this new property law number 10 that was introduced at the beginning of April. Um, whereby, uh, basically under the pretext of urban reconstruction, um, anyone who's a former property owner has 30 days to come back um, to claim that. And some of the, would you agree with the analysis that says that basically the six million people who have fled as refugees are going to find it very, very difficult to come back and reclaim that and given that your vision in some ways relies on all those young people who have fled to be part of rebuilding a you know a truly secular and tolerant and um, respective of all religions you know freedom social justice and your vision is one that agree with um, are there increased difficulties as a result of this law and the ability of these people to play that role in the future Yes, thank you. Uh, actually, law number, as, as you said, law number 10, they, they amended the law now. It's not 30 days. They increased the period to reach one year. And not necessary for the uh, owner himself or to come to, uh, to, to the authority to declare uh, his properties. Anyone of his relatives can do the job. So they try to be more flexible due to the international uh, pressure, especially from uh, uh, Russia. But the issue is for whom the regime is going to reconstruct or to, is going to build the new city. People who lost their homes now, they cannot afford to buy one square meter of the new building. This new city is created for the warlords work for the regime, is created for the rich people, is created for the conflict elite that support the regime because it's not affordable for regular people to buy home in these cities. The regime is not rebuilding 
or reconstructing the destroyed city. The regime is building a new city. And of course, the regime is, we can say, confiscating the land of, uh, of uh, these people without uh, really fair compensation. They give people shares which they cannot do anything with these shares because they have, for example, 1% of a building. They cannot do anything. So they have to sell their shares to one of uh, the traders, one of the crony capitalists, one of the warlords who will own the whole building and then resell it to rich people. Hi, um, my name is Madison. Um, thank you so much for that talk. It was really interesting. Um, I was just wondering, you mentioned the reliance on the violence-related um, economy in Syria and the need to scale that back um, if there wants to be any sort of like stable um, peace. And I was just wondering, though, in terms of that transition, of transitioning away from a violence-related economy into something more sustainable, um, like how, who manages that? transition to ensure that there isn't like a spike in unemployment that could just lead to more social unrest, especially for young people? Unfortunately, now, now there's no one working on, uh, let's say, dismantling the foundation of violence uh, economy or violence-related economy. All the uh, de facto dominant institutions, they are benefiting from the continuation of uh, of the violence-related uh, activities. And we believe that we need to have civil organizations to challenge these dynamics, to, uh, to have some solutions to face these uh, dynamics. So, yeah, and it's not only about the regime-controlled area. These dynamics in all over the regions, even in Kurdish-controlled authority-controlled uh, area and in the uh, north of Syria, where different armed groups controlled uh, the region. The issue is that the dominant power are supporting this kind of uh, economy. So to overcome the consequences of these activities or violence-related activities, we need to face or to challenge the de facto dominant power. So this is slightly related to that question as well, but you mentioned um, a decrease, obviously a decrease in human development and human security. Um, are there any efforts to focus on that to enable the basic human security for the people to then enable them to um, collectively rebuild the state? Yeah, security is very important, but it's very tricky. I mean, the regime and all the fighting powers and uh, the, the, I mean, even Daesh and even the armed group, the Nusra, they use the security, they use the stability as a tool to control people. So what we are talking about is sustainable stability, is stability that Less, not stability or not an imposed stability because, okay, Daesh used to have the tools, used to have the weapon, they were violent, that's why there were kind of stability in Daesh controlled area. But this is not 
the type of stability that the Syrian people want. We need stability based on sustainable peace, based on rights, to have this continuous or this sustainable stability. We don't want the stability of 2010, because the stability of 2010 led us to the conflict. I might add a question on that point. There are certainly problems with it, but have you encountered in the Syrian diaspora or communities in Syria ideas of looking to the South African model of truth and reconciliation as a way of boosting social capital and regaining some of that social cohesion uh, that eight years of civil war have destroyed? Uh, has that been on the radar in your research at all? Not, not, uh, not in our research as a center, but yeah, there are uh, institutions and civil organizations that try to benefit from all the experience, including the South, uh, South African experience. Uh, but to what extent this experience in South, in South Africa is related to the Syrian context? Because the, it's different between Syria, what happened in Syria and in Syria, and in South Africa. But maybe the consequences can be faced the same or using the same manner in South Africa. Uh, hello, uh, my name's Tom. Um, I, I will declare my hand. I, I, I worked, I still do work for the IMF. And in the 2009-10 period, I, I was working on, uh, I was responsible for quite a chunk of the support to the Middle East, including your country. And, um, and I wanted to ask you about the reform illusion comment. Because then, and we only see a small slice. You know, we're, we're, we're just economists. And we worked at the Ministry of Finance. We were really confident in the capacity of them to do reforms that they had legislated. There was institutional restructuring, there were new laws, there was a broadening of the tax base, they were, they were trying to mobilise revenues. And we thought, and you might be right, that we were just deluded, but we thought there was good capacity vis-a-vis -vis others in the region. And I wondered how you saw the situation now. Because um, you know, we haven't had contact with them for a long time. And, um, and I remember the fear uh, at a dinner where, you were there too, where it was October of 2010 and it was falling apart. Could you move to the, the Right. Question? So, sorry. So, sorry. So the question is, what is the institutional capacity that's left in these institutions now? Because, as you say, it has to be emphasised, it has to be built, but I wonder what's remaining. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Actually, in terms of human capital, Many experts left the country, so we have really an issue in terms of human capital in Syria, or this, is, this will be a future uh, issue. And of course, also in terms of financial uh, or uh, the accessibility to fund and uh, to money, this is another issue. But the main issue, I think, is the political will. Is there any political will for real reform 
in the future for a reform in these institutions to overcome the impact of the crisis. So I think this is what we need to push for, to create this will, first of all, uh, to have agreed vision about the future of Syria at the level of Syrian people, and then to push for having this political will to reform the institutions. And when we have the will, I mean, when the political will is there, people left the country, they most probably will come back to support the reform process of these institutions. Hi, um, I just wanted to ask, how would you be able to create long-term uh, sustainable stability if you don't consider how you're going to expel Daesh because if you don't expel them they're still a great threat and how would you get the discussion going to also not have other international actors intervene? It's a very difficult question but <laughs> yeah actually as I said it's not going to happen in the near future. I mean the sustainable peace or sustainable stability, if we can say. It needs, but we need to start working on that from now. And to have this uh, sustainable peace, the process toward this peace needs to be inclusive. We need to include all people in the dialogue. Even people used to be in Daesh. But how? We need to include people in free, protected space for dialogue, but this space should be based on specific values. These values include the freedom, justice, equality, for instance, that the majority of Syrian people agreed on. So if someone from Daesh in jo joined this discussion, when you talk about equality, they cannot continue the discussion because they don't believe in equality. They don't believe in justice. So it should be inclusive at the beginning, but at the same time, it should be based on values. And again, this will not be, or this will not have a direct impact. This needs a lot of time to, uh, to have impact in the future. And, but it needs to start now. Hi, good evening. Thanks for your talk. My name is Stuart. Uh, I volunteered last year over in, with some NGOs in Lebanon and got a real uh, feel for what things are like on the ground. I'm curious, the, the point at which you mentioned this social reform and the, the kind of exchange of information through social media, I think it, pl uh, it plays and it's going to play a very big role in conflict and the, the opportunity for institutions to influence public opinion through social media is uh, it's quite hard to kind of determine. Uh, so I was just curious if you had any area of research or interest in that matter. Thanks. Yeah, actually, yeah, thank you for your uh, point. We don't have this kind of uh, research, but when I say the, the, the telecommunication and the role of telecommunication in increasing awareness, I was talking about the uh, 2011. But this same social media also 
uh, is being used by the fighting parties to increase the uh, social degradation and to increase polarization. So you're right, there, there's a need to have research of the role that could be played by social, social media and how can we benefit from uh, this tool in the future as Syrian people. Hi, um, you talked a lot about the kind of, a lot of young people left the country and there's a lot of elderly people still there. I just wanted to kind of get a better view on their situation now and you know, obviously, are they literally just left kind of like on their own? I'm just kind of trying to get a bit more of a understanding of how they're still existing in Syria and their kind of situation as a lot of the young people, their children, their grandchildren have left the country. So you're talking about the situation of young people who left the country and if they are going to... The older population and... Um, you know, how they're kind of still existing in the country and how they're yeah. kind of getting on with out um, the younger generations. Yeah, actually, the, the issue of young population create or uh, led to uh, an increase in the dependency ratio. Dependency ratio is how many old people and children depend on uh, young uh, generation. So... And the increase in dependency ratio has a very uh, negative consequences. And uh, of course, the old people is suffering maybe more than other people, but they cannot travel. They don't have the means to travel. They, they don't have, I mean, because traveling outside Syria as refugees, as you may know, is very risky, is very dangerous. So many old people prefer to stay home even if this is risky for them. And the majority of them, of them, they're living in very difficult living conditions. And as I said, the majority of Syrian people, more than 90% of Syrian people are under poverty line. So yeah, the, the situation of old person are very bad, but the people who left, the young people who left the country, they're trying to support them by, through remittances. They send money for their parents, and due to the depreciation of the Syrian pound or the Syrian currency, $100 can make a lot for people stay in the country. Just on that, do you have statistics on the state of the Syrian diaspora and their ability to send remittances back to Syria? In the Lebanese case, it was very important during the civil war uh, that the Lebanese diaspora outside of Lebanon would send remittances back, and they still do to this day, and it's a very large part of Lebanon's GDP. Uh, is, do you see similar uh, dynamics at play with the Syrian diaspora? Yeah, there's no uh, comprehensive analysis about their role in the economy, but there are general indicators. For example, the total amount of remittance uh, sent daily is between three to five million dollars per day. So it plays, I mean, the remittance plays a major role in the current uh, economy or current dynamics of Syrian economy. 
Uh, hi, uh, Jack. Uh, Jack here. I'm a student journalist from UTS at uh, Central News. Uh, just a question for my own research. Um, uh, could you just give me a, a, a list of sources of bibliography uh, of the that you put into? Uh, sorry, that you used in the in the talk tonight. I saw you use the population survey 2014 from the Syrian Center for Policy Research and the social degradation report for 20. Sorry, 2014 and 2017, the social degradation report. I was just wondering if there's any other pertinent sources that you sh that I should include. Yeah, uh, I mean, all this, all all information here mentioned here is included in the reports issued by the the center. And when you read the report, you can see the sources of all the information that we have. Okay. Are these freely available online? Yeah, yeah. Everything is But for him, should pay. <laughs> Thank you so much for your talk. Um, you spoke about how uh, the economy is now so dominated by war-related activities, and obviously there's going to need to be a huge transition. But you, it's not even a transition back to 2010 because the economy was in so much trouble. So what? Where do you see that the economy can go in the future? Are there certain industries or something that you think might be, you know, points of hope for the economy? Do you know, do you have any idea of how it could get out of this? Yeah, actually, regardless the dominance of the war uh, lords, we believe that now in, in Syria there is a great opportunity for economic boost because of the reconstruction process. But again, this reconstruction process should be inclusive, so not to increase the gap between the conflict elite rich people and the majority of Syrian people. So yeah, there is a great opportunity for, uh, for uh, Syrian economy, and it could be used as a tool to increase or to have the social cohesion between Syrian people again. If, for example, we focus on the civil uh, economy activities where people gather together to, to, uh, gather to rebuild their uh, factory, for example, with the support of the state. We are talking about the ideal situation. Uh, so again, yeah, there is an opportunity. Uh, we don't want to go back to the uh, period of uh, b before the crisis. We hope that we can contribute as civil society in having this kind of inclusive reconstruction process and highlighting, meanwhile, highlighting any gaps in this process, highlighting the, the issue, for example, of law number 10, uh, open discussion about this law and its impact. And at the end, there was really a pressure on the regime and they changed this law. So yeah, it's a long uh, journey, but yeah, the economy, there is an opportunity. Um, so there is a great support for Assad within the Syrian community here in Australia. I'm not sure if you have um, got a personal experience on that. And even in Syria. And these are simple people, not chronic capitalists that you mentioned, not part of the elite, who still support. You already mentioned lack of options and frustration, but still there seem to be a genuine support for the, govern for the government. How do you explain that? And... How do you personally deal with that, with these people? Yeah, actually, as, I'm, as, as you said, 
I talked about the uh, investment in identity politics. I talk about the first, uh, frustration that Syrian people is facing now because they don't have choices. And actually they only have the Assad regime put people in diff difficult situation. You either have me or you have the chaos and the armed groups and the uh, jihadists controlling uh, the country. We remember that at the beginning of the social movement in 2011, the regime released the Islamic uh, leaders from jail because the regime know, knew that these leaders are going to start armed or create armed groups. And armed conflict is the, is the playground for the regime. At the same time, the regime detained all the majority of civil activists. And the remaining of civil activists leave the country because they were under uh, risk. So the, re the regime, we can say that it was very clever in dealing with the situation, not for the benefit of Syria, but for the benefit of itself. They create the situation where Syrian people have to choose the regime because other choices are not available and the, available, the only available choice for them is either the regime or the chaos or the destruction. We can see here in the map living conditions and the poverty that the most affected governorate was the governorates outside the regime controlled area due to the huge military operation, due to the large destruction. So again, the regime gave people only two choices, either me, the regime, or the destruction. So that's why you can see this kind of support, because of course there are supporters, genuine supporters for the regime, but not like a huge percentage. In Raqqa, when Daesh uh, dominated Raqqa, people used to deal with Daesh, not because they support Daesh, because they afraid Daesh and they want this kind of stability. They want to survive. That's why they support, or it seems that they supported Daesh. But in fact, they don't. So people need more options, more choices, not only this or that. Good evening. Uh, do you think Western media and entertainment is helping or hindering the um, efforts in Syria? And for the young fellow, um, what advice would you give um, to guide future media participants to effectively discuss what's happening in Syria? Yeah, actually, of course, media plays a major role in the conflict, especially with the, uh, the mainstream of what's happening in Syria. For example, many uh, well-known journalists focus on the sectarian issue, that these, the, the conflict in Syria is between Alawite minority and Sunni majority, uh, or it's uh, the issue of only poverty, or it's the issue of a fight between Iran and and Saudi Arabia. So they, they have this, unfortunately, this shallow uh, analysis. That's why my advice, if you ask me 
about my advice is to really depend on comprehensive research, is to really uh, have contact not with only one source, to have your inform information from different sources. Uh, because unfortunately, there is a lot of polarization now in Syria. So if you have your source from if you have your information from one source, this information for sure will be, or most probably will be biased. So as journalists, you need to approach people with different perspective, with different backgrounds, to have this comprehensive analysis and not an analysis from only one point of view. Hello. Um, just out of interest, what do you think would be more beneficial for Syria in the near future? The return of social capital that would come with the refugees coming home or the remittances they're currently sending by staying away? For sure, the, uh, the, the human capital. I mean, when people come back to Syria under specific condition, if they have the right condition, it's more efficient for Syrian economy to have them as a positive human capital, as a, a, an actor in reconstructing the social cohesion in Syria, it's much more efficient than the remittance sent from them. Of course, it's more complicated. I mean, the situation is more complicated. Maybe many, some of them will come back to, to, to Syria, and this will be an ad for the human capital. And some of them will stay there and send to Syria not only remittance, but also the, uh, the knowledge also the uh, experience or technical support for the future of Syria. And I think we've got time for one more. I'll keep it short, sorry. Um, so it's a broader question, I guess. Um, what faith do you have in the official peace talks that have happened, all the Geneva various things? Because it seems that since Russia has entered, that a lot of the opposition's upset, I think rightfully, that the future is discussed in terms of Bashar al-Assad still staying in power in some form or another? And do you think your vision can be achieved while that's still the case? Yeah. Most probably the, the situation in Syria will end up like what happened in, let's say, in Lebanon, when we have this Taif agreement and the warlords uh, sit together and come up with an agreement of how they... Uh, you, you know, how they distribute power between each, each other. And the, the winner will be the regime because the regime now is uh, or dominate the most of Syrian territories. But again, what is our role as civil uh, organization is to create a parallel alternative or a parallel path for the future of Syria, benefiting from what's happening in Geneva. Because in Geneva, there was a lot of positive thing. Syrians were, uh, uh, Syrians were discussing their situation together, Syrians from different backgrounds sitting together. So we can benefit from what happened there. But it's very important to create this parallel path or these alternatives. But we think, and unfortunately, it's a long struggle. 
as I said, mo the most probable solution is to have Bashar al-Assad and the regime for a long, longer period now because they got the support of Russia and Iran and now he's got the support of even some Western countries. All the external actors are not or do not really care about the needs and aspiration of Syrian people. They care about stability in this country and they think that stability can only uh, be by having Bashar Assad in power. So this is the probable future. Again, we need to create this parallel path as a hope for the future. Okay, well, I think that's all we have time for. So thank you very much, Zaki Nashi. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.